So I've got uh, three suitors that we can go through. Two different topics. Um, so so this first sutta is from the Anguttara Nikaya 5.73 and it's called One Who Lives the Teaching. And so this person is speak, asking the Buddha, Sir, they speak of one who lives the teaching. How is one who lives the teaching? And the Buddha replies, Take a monk who is learning the teaching. They spend their days studying. They neglect solitude and do not engage in settling the mind. That monk is called one who studies a lot, not who one, not one who lives the teaching. Um, furthermore, a monk teaches in detail to others what they have heard and studied. They spend their days expounding their teaching but they neglect solitude and do not engage in settling the mind. That monk is called one who expounds a lot, not one who lives the teaching. Furthermore, a monk recites in detail the teaching that they have heard and learned. They spend their days reciting, but they neglect solitude and do not engage in settling the mind. Or a monk who intentionally reflects upon, thinks about and considers the teaching he has heard and learned. They spend their day reflecting on their teaching but they neglect solitude and do not engage in settling the mind. And then take a monk who is studying the teaching. They don't spend their days studying their teaching. They don't neglect solitude and they engage in settling the mind. That's how a monk is one who lives the teaching. <coughs> so there's a few questions uh, around this. So a person can go into great detail with their studies, like learning Pali, there's, there's historical contexts of the texts, etymological investigations, statistical analysis, comparisons, parallel map making, memorization, categorization, uh, and becoming a proliferated scholar, accredited by others who have done the same, yet still not be living or applying their teaching that they are supposed to be experts on. So, doesn't knowledge make you understand the subject you are learning? Is such scholarly work really an obstacle? Like getting all that information. Well, yeah, I think that whoever asks the question needs to differentiate knowledge and information. You can have a vast amount of information collected. That doesn't mean you understood the subject you were informed about. And in this case, that's even more obvious because the understanding of the subject of the Dhamma is measured by Sotapati or higher. Mm -hmm. um, so, since that's not the case, then no amount of knowledge is actually knowledge that matters. It's just information and references and so on that can very much create an impression in a conceited mind of uh, being fully, kind of uh, being an expert on a, on a topic. Because you, you, you have learned every facet, every permutation of it, but you haven't understood it. Um, and uh, I think if somebody commits to, to that direction, to, to that extent of informational studies, yeah, I think it's quite, uh, it's quite risky in a way. Um, basically, if you commit to such level of collecting information without having the right view first, you are going there with your conceit, with your greed, with your craving, with your 
mental habits and proliferations. And then you're going to arrive there thinking now you understood everything because you turned every stone upside down, you investigated every root of every word, you memorized everything. So there is no more information there to gain in that sense. So you, you would genuinely feel like you arrive at the complete understanding of the Buddhist teaching while you're still a Patujana. And that's like one of the most blatant contradictions in terms. So same, like committing to a meditation method or something, or committing to a scholastic study without having developed the right view. It's just going to increase your wrong views. As simple as that. Yeah, it really block your progress. I mean, yeah, yeah. Because yeah. even if you start in the very beginning, before you have gone into wrong directions, you still have a lot of things to undo internally. Misconceived notions, perceptions, and so on. Until you can actually even begin to understand the direction where the Dhamma applies. But in this case, you would have accumulated a lot more than you would also have to undo. And... Um, generally as a kind of unwritten rule is that if you couldn't undo it when there wasn't so much of the burden on you you're probably not going to do it 20 years later when you have accumulated another mountain of it mountains of convictions and stuff but if a person's honest and they don't forsake the most fundamental reason for the practice which is freedom from suffering they won't stray that too far. So somebody might have an inclination to learn more and study etymology, but they will keep this as a reference point. That, that, that um, you know, necessity of understanding the nature of suffering and being free from it as the measure of understanding, not a degree from a householder's university on Buddhist studies. So it's like you you can read. Uh, so we have access. Everybody has access to the suttas, mm. to all this information, and you got uh, information about all these different jhanas and, and states of you know high states yeah. of mind. Uh, all these kind of really complicated topics, even. And so I think that yeah, the danger is if you don't realize when you're reading these things that okay, so have I have I done the first things, you know, do I keep the precepts, do I keep central strength? No. But then why am I even thinking about fourth mm. jhana mm. and uh, the you know, eighth jhana? Why am I even going that direction? Yeah. Why do you even think that any of this stuff applies to me? That any of this instruction applies to me? Have I met the necessary criteria to even qualify myself for the application of these practices that the Buddha taught to monks? As I said many times before, he hasn't never taught meditation to householders. It was just not a thing. You want a samadhi, calm your mind, yeah? Recollect your unbroken virtue, recollect the Buddha, the Dhamma, the Sangha, ponder on it actively, on your right view and so on, and, and you will have pleasant abiding here and now as a result of your composure. But that's like, you know, that's the work. And then you can do that work as a lay person as well, but having developed a view that the work is on the level of meditation technique or something, you actually neglect the work that you could actually do and benefit from and you do the stuff that's just going to end up being a cover-up to whatever you haven't resolved internally in in terms of your state of putujan and not knowing the escape from suffering and so on. There's also an aspect about what is your measure or reference point of understanding even the basic things like 
um, for example, like you can go into different definitions of the word Vedana, for example, mm. like, and look at, you know, how, what it meant or whatever in the context of the time or something. But it's kind of obvious if you think about it. So what's the, the point of doing this? What's, mm. you know, to, to understand Vedana, mm. like there's a, what you should spend as much time as possible contemplating what it actually refers to in your in your own experience mm -hmm. like to spend as much you know in a way it's kind of you know correct like i should spend as much time trying to understand the subject that i'm trying to fully understand but it's not through looking at a book that I'm going to understand this subject because that's not where the, the, the that's not where that subject is in mm. a way. It's where the description or the information information is. Yeah. But then the point is to turn it into your own experience and try to like use your own your own your own experience as that reference point for mm. what is right and what is wrong or what is the what is the meaning of of the suttas. Mm. Like, because <coughs> otherwise it's, it's abstract <coughs> and yeah like the five precepts and sense restraint that's when it's that, that's when it's no longer abstract that's when it's tangible and you're 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 looking mm. at the like Vedana in your experience so, yeah but you still need to to, to make the effort to look at the Vedana in your experience yeah. not at the Vedana in dictionary mm. yeah that's what I mean yeah, yeah. That like, yeah, you need to keep the precepts to be a sense restraint, but you could still maintain the scholastic attitudes mm. and look for it out there. Mm. Oh, I'm perfectly restrained, but I still study what others peop other people had to say on Vedana throughout the history yeah. to learn Vedana while I actually am experiencing Vedana here mm. and now. That's kind of the point. Yeah. But I don't trust that as a reference of learning and insight. I trust the comprehensive scholastic consultation of whatever has been said before and then drawing kind of the essence of it and maybe coming up with a few of the ideas of my own. And that's like completely wrong direction. As wrong as watching your nostrils, just yeah. in a different way. Yeah. Like it, there's this, um, another sutta, it's the second sutta in the Satipatthana Samyutta of the Samyutta Nikaya, mm -hmm. where he's saying, and it starts by just saying those monks who have recently gone forth or like are new to this dhamma and discipline I think it, it can be interpreted as being like those who have not yet mm. the right view mm. should be encouraged to develop satipatthana as in to contemplate the phenomenon of the body Where it in order to <laughs> and, and then it says so as to uh, so as to fully understand Vedana, mm. Mm. or so as to fully understand the body, or, or so as to fully understand the mind. Yeah. Um, and then it continues how, like, the, then the Sekka, the noble disciple, is encouraged to um, contemplate the body, but having, having understood it, he is, he is um, now doing it in order to, like, develop the complete understanding of it, basically. So it's like, and then what's interesting is like in the translations that you read of this sutta, it kind of makes it sound as though you're just sitting in this state of like, 
developing a state of concentration that will magically enable you to to see to see the miracle, the miracle of, of, yeah. rather than it but it's it, it's very obvious or it's very just kind of clear if you read the thing it just says you know if you want to fully understand something spend as much of your time being you know composed being clear-headed contemplating, contemplating it, it in yeah. your own experience you in order to bring it to mind it, yeah, it doesn't say reference look, points. look up the etymolo- et- etymological mm. uh, uh, basis for these words mm-hmm. but it doesn't give that instruction mm. look at the history of these words mm. doesn't just look, look yeah, all of that can be helpful if you already know where to look but you will not necessarily find out where to look if the only place you look is the etymologies and history and scholastic study because mm. I, I mentioned that before there was that like long time ago and yeah, you start reading the suttas and then other <coughs> Pali and other things and translations and then my own language and then English language and then Pali language and then you're trying to get the idea. But then I remember it just dawned on me like it was about consciousness. I, I must have said this before many times. And it was like, okay, but okay, let, let's put aside all these different words. Let me just use the words that I know even in my own language. When I say consciousness... What do I refer to? What am I referring to? There has to be something in this experience that I'm designating by word consciousness. So rather than dwelling on the aspect of how that word came to be and what it means for others and so on, no, just in the most direct way, I'm telling you I am a conscious person. What am I referring to? What aspect of this experience of me and others am I designating by saying I am a conscious person, self-aware? What part of this is referred to? that's completely unclear then I thought well let me find something easier than uh, Vedana feeling oh what am I referring to now it's still unclear and I realized then that's the whole point call them whatever you want they need to be understood not redesignated and rebranded and reinvestigated as I said through like a historiological context or something because the notions in regard to those five things that you start with, form, feeling, perception, intentions, consciousness, you know, the basic stuff, the notions that you carry as an unenlightened person are the reason why you're unenlightened. They obstruct the nature of that which you take to be yours. And you take to be yours because you don't see it as, as unownable. And instead of undoing what you're already kind of holding and assuming, you're just piling up more. Just, just... Yeah, you learn one language, another one, and another one, you write a paper, and then compare the two, and then you add the third reference, and great, great. And it, it, it's endless in that way, and you still haven't actually cleared up the very starting point. When you use the word from any language you pick to designate consciousness, what phenomenon are you referring to? What is it? Describe it in your own words. What are the properties of it? What is its nature? Feeling, form, intentions, same. Like I've had I've done this before. Like I just okay. What actually is greed, for example? Yeah. What do I mean by greed? What is unwholesome? So what is unwholesome? <laughs> and then you just like thinking about that throughout the day. It naturally kind of um, gives you a certain broader perspective or a higher yeah. perspective. Like when your mind wants to uh, go in a certain direction or be kind of greedy, it's not like okay, I must not do this. And so I just, okay, oh, that's greed. Okay, what? So is this greed, or is this what feeling means? Mm. And now you kind of nat- are naturally kind of not on the level of just, you know, em- um, embodying it, be becoming it. You're yeah. developing some perspective in regard to it, without it being this, like, 
it's easier in a, in a sense, or I think it can be for some people to not become too wound up about not acting out of unwholesome and so on. It's like the two types of thoughts we were talking about last week. Mm-hmm. Yeah, exactly, the broad yeah. category. But you realise for, for that to not be an abstract thing, mm. you need to invest effort actually yeah, in like clarifying, undoing things up to the point where you do clearly see, oh, anything that partakes in greed, aversion, delusion, category of unwholesome, anything that doesn't partake in it, category of wholesome, factual as a phenomenon, you see, you see that nature of it. Um, so everybody can start that with, as an idea, and then out of that external idea, they will try to do it. But yeah, that's fine if you you know you begin like that. But the point is not to like just stick to it blindly, but to actually stop referring to it as an external idea and develop that internal reference point. No, no, I need to know why greed, aversion, delusion are unwholesome. Yeah. How they're always felt, and as we described in the previous talk, they always have a nature of a trap, nature of pressure, of of, of burden, of uh, debt, and you realize, well, that's factually not good. If it were good, it wouldn't need to be set up in such a devious manner. So that's why I don't <coughs> trust it, that's why I won't do it. And that's something you can see for yourself. That's when the danger becomes apparent, when you suddenly recognize the trap that you haven't been seeing before and you've been walking through and getting trapped many times, now you actually saw it. And then you learn how to see it. And then you avoid it naturally when you see it as a trap. But none of that will just magically crystallize in your mind on account of sticking to the precepts and so on or, or, or meditating diligently in the contemporary sense of technique and concentration. No, that needs that's the diligence, that's the work. The right type of thinking, abstaining from welcoming the thoughts of unwholesome kind, yeah, picking up Dhamma <laughs> objects, i.e. Dhamma themes that you will actually ponder and, and clarify for yourself. Like, well, the Buddha said, cultivate wholesome, don't cultivate unwholesome. What is wholesome? Like, now when I have these thoughts, what are they? Are they wholesome or unwholesome? Whatever conclusion you come to, okay, now reinvestigate that. Um, so you actually have to actively engage in, in clarifying what what work needs to be done. Otherwise, it wouldn't be a trap if if you could <coughs> kind of yeah if you could discern it without that without that um, kind of yeah. continuous diligence. Yeah. Yeah, well, you wouldn't have to go against the grain. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, that's the point. Because because yeah, the trap. The whole point is that it sort of limits your. Then people will kind of just accidentally <coughs> stumble upon enlightenment. I just yeah. went in this direction and look, nibbana. No, it can't happen by accident because you have to perpetually swim against the whole grain of your being, the entire nature, everything that points that way. Well, for one reason or the other. You are going against it. You are swimming upwards. For how long? Well, out of faith, for as long as it takes. And then when things are verified and seen for yourself, then of course, you won't need any more convincing. Uh, this is Angutri Nikaya 8.63. And uh, it's called In Brief. So then a certain bhikkhu approached the Blessed One, paid homage to him, and said, Bhante, it would be good if the Blessed One would teach me the Dhamma in brief, so that, having heard the Dhamma from the Blessed One, I might dwell alone, withdrawn, heedful, ardent, and resolute. And the Buddha replies, It is in just this way that some hollow men here make requests of me. But when the Dhamma has been explained, 
they think only of following me around. And that, as I was saying, it kind of relates to the last mm. one. It's just, yeah, you're yeah. just reading and suitors after suitor after suitor, but not applying any of it. You're just yeah, well, you, like you, you, you might well be holding a view that reading and getting inspired on a kind of suttas is the application. Yeah. And but practically, you'll just be following the suttas of the Buddha around, not doing it, because mm. needing a it's constant a access to the source of inspiration of so, the external kind. Yeah. So they they might not have had the suttas like all the suttas we have today, but they were still. Mm. Uh, kind of doing the same things some, yeah. some people do. and then uh, the monk says Bhante let the blessed one teach me the Dhamma in brief let the fortunate one teach me the Dhamma in brief perhaps I might come to understand the meaning of the statements so then the Buddha says in that case Bhikkhu you should train yourself thus my mind will be immovable and settled internally arisen bad unwholesome states will not overpower my mind Thus, you should train yourself. Do that. There you go. So you realize why, like, I mean, you, you can ask yourself, why, if that's not enough or instruction for you, why is that not enough? Why is that insufficient? But you realize, well, it's not because the instruction lacks meat or heartwood. It's because too many obstructions in your mind that this is just too abstract. Mm-hmm. So you better start clearing up the mess so that you can apply that. And everybody starts with some degree of mess, so everybody has to do some clearing. Um, but it's, uh, and that should be like, a, oh, that can be a reflection. Wait, but why is this not enough for my mind to to do it, to get inspired? Because I don't truly understand what I need to do. And I don't truly understand because I cannot measure the task given to me because I don't I don't quite see where, where it applies mm-hmm. and I don't see where it applies because I'm obviously well not listening properly so to speak in other words I'm listening to these words but they don't mean the same thing to me as they meant to the Buddha when he instructed it when he refers to those things mind and overpower and unwholesome but those things are not understood by me so I better start understanding that so that then this instruction can make sense so that I can measure the task so that I can actually apply mm-hmm. myself and get the results of it but that's unpleasant work. That, uh, well, you know. of course. Even just recognizing mm. properly this, wait, I actually don't even know what that means. Is kind of a. It can be easy to just kind of take for granted your own, like first uh, impression of what you mm. think that might mean, and then try and like do it, mm. which is obviously going to result in. That's why they they kind of initial that would feel kind of inspiring or something, but then it would sort of run out, and it's like, oh well, I need to get more instruction because yeah. I don't really, I've I've done a bit, but now, yeah, now I think I need more, but because you didn't clarify in the beginning the what that initial instruction really meant. There's that, yeah. and you could <coughs> and you and, and you won't clarify it for as long as you think the clarification uh, comes from the outside. Exactly. Like sometimes, yeah, maybe you simply don't have enough information. But in cases like this, you ha- that's enough, that's sufficient. Otherwise, the wouldn't have given it as a self-sufficient instruction. So the clarification of that instruction then comes on the level of not further scholastic study, but of actually undoing the basic misconceptions in regard to the phenomenon of mind, consciousness, uh, wholesome, unwholesome, 
being overpowered, overpowering, and all of that. Yeah, I mean, doing that, you know, trying to figure out what my mind will be, should be immovable, settled internally. Arisen bad, unwholesome states will not overpower my mind. So if you were actually trying to do that, and doing that, to try and apply that, that instruction will be, you would see deeper yeah, meanings exactly, to it, exactly. and deeper and deeper. Yeah. You wouldn't move on, because yeah, there yeah, is exactly. depth and the ending of the practice. But another thing to, to add, though, is that even as a, let's say, simple instruction as that, as in not very complex, not many moving parts, uh, doesn't matter how much you apply yourself, even if you're doing it what in the way we are describing it, it won't work unless you have been restrained beforehand, mm-hmm. um, guarding of the sense doors, keeping the precepts, being watchful and wakeful. It just won't work. Yeah, and that's why the mind will drift away as well. Mm-hmm. It's because you're actually undermining it. You're unanchoring it from the right context through your intentional acts towards sensuality, out of ill will, out of hindrances. Yeah. So if you actually invest the work there, you won't need much of an external inspiration to keep you inspired on a topic or a theme of practice. The mind won't drift too far away from it because you are not taking it too far away from it with your actions. So that's another thing to consider if like instruction like this but just seems to kind of pass over my head and mind doesn't leap leap into it and wants to think about it, wants to contemplate it well. I think you might have to re- review your behavior by body, by speech, by mind, how you spend the rest of your waking day, what do you, things you think about, things you're saying, bodily actions. Are they restrained, thoroughly withdrawn, dried up? If not, well, you got your answer. That's when none of this will apply. Uh, so, yeah, the sutta continues, and it's this the Buddha gives ex- extra further meditation exercises, some instructions there. He says, when a bhikkhu, when bhikkhu, your mind is immovable and settled internally and arisen bad unwholesome states do not overpower your mind, then you should train yourself thus further. So, so you've got to do that first. first. <laughs> so have you passed that? So what do you do that first? You do the... How, how do you measure? How do you know you're not overpowered by the... So, arisen unwholesome states. Your mind is settled, but wholesome states arose. So that's not up to you, as we say often. Oh, but okay. So is this overpowering me, or is it not? Or what do, what, what do we do? How do I know? How do I, am I? Am I still immovable? Is this moving me? So how do you know whether you're overpowered or not? What's the measure of being overpowered? Can you just blink, and next moment is oh, I'm overpowered. Acting out by body, speech, or mind. Exactly. <coughs> Certainly by body and speech. Yeah. You're overpowered if you act out. If you don't act out, you're not overpowered. It doesn't matter the amount of doubt they might try to make you act out or clarify it. You realize, well, I'm not like now. Thus, I'm not the one being moved. Sure, I'm feeling the pressure of the unwholesome state, but I'm not acting out. I'm not doing anything on account of it. It's there. I'm mindful of it. That's it. I'm internally calm in regard to, you know. Yeah, internally calm means basically not acting out. does not mean internally not feeling the pressure of an un- arisen unwholesome state. So otherwise, why would you need to practice uh, steadiness and not being overwhelmed by it? No, you do feel the weight of it. That's kind of the point. So so it's like not, not acting out. Not acting out by body. Or oh, acting out by speech. Okay, well, to that extent I was moved, but at least I didn't act by body. Or oh, I didn't act by body. I didn't act out by the speech. 
okay, mentally I'm still trying to revolve around mm-hmm. and get rid of this doubt. I'm acting out to that extent. Let me stop that now as well. At least I didn't act out by speech and by body. So it is a gradual training that then you can perfect to the point there is a pressure of the unwholesome, you're internally calm, there is the doubt to clarify whether you're internally calm or not, and you recognize even that now, if you were to clarify it, it would be acting out on account of discomfort, and you realize, well, by not clarifying it, I'm clarifying it. Mm-hmm. By not engaging with a clarification of my doubt, I'm staying unmoved. And that's kind of the point that even doubt wants me to resolve. Mm-hmm. So you stop using the middleman of hindrances and acting out of them. So once that's done, once you uh, yeah. uh, an yeah. expert in that, so to speak. Unmoved by these things. Yeah. He says, then you can f- do these further exercises. And one of them uh, is that Brahma Viharas. Mm. I will develop and cultivate the liberation of mind by friendliness or non-ill will. Yeah. Make it a vehicle, a habit, a basis, carry it out, consolidate it and properly undertake it. I would take up a theme that now my mind would listen and pay attention to and adhere to. Why? Well, because I tamed it. You have the I tamed it beforehand, yeah. So you can see, we, all, we always say, like, you know, the jhana, the whole practice comes as a result of you overcoming the hindrances, understanding the unwholesome, thoroughly withdrawing it. I mean, every description of jhana says thoroughly withdrawn from unwholesome states, from five hindrances, on a later occasion, basically, then he, he dwells, he enters... He dwells having entered jhana. On a later occasion, after he's thoroughly withdrawn, quite secluded, whichever translation we're going to use, it means you've done this work first, thoroughly, without any residue, without any tolerating of the hindrances and, and acting out of them. And then the mind will listen and it will be inwardly calm. And then whether it's jhana or brahma vihara, that's the order of development. But not like, oh, I practice for jhana jhanic ecstatic absorption pleasure and thus sensuality will fall away yeah. as a result of that yeah, cool. and this is the same people are like oh I'm full of will will so I practice metta so that these things will fall away no 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 you gotta f- drop those things first and then the mind can develop metta and so on yeah you you, you create that uh, that environment yeah yeah of course of course it's not yeah. that yeah. it'll just magically yeah, as we said in the previous episode, like I have abandoned, mm-hmm. I have relinquished, I've given up the five hindrances that uh, Nanda Mata Sutta mm. yeah, she, she's given them up to fully understanding yeah. them and that's why now she has jhanas at will mm. not other way around yeah, yeah that, and the, like, likewise with this one it doesn't say he develops Brahma Viharas and then he's free from will be removal and yes. yeah. exactly mm. yeah. and, uh, well, here is a technique for Brahma Vihara Stick to it blindly and you'll become immovable like a rock and no hindrance can enter you and, and, and no work of contemplation and enduring the pain or the pressure of other reason states that are trying to overwhelm you, you will have to endure. Yeah. Wouldn't that be wonderful? Yeah. But that's not the case. Yeah. Until you snap. <laughs> yeah, because yeah. basically you're just covering things up. And uh, it goes on further, it says, uh, when this samadhi has been developed and cultivated by you, in this way, that's uh, composure of Brahma Viharas, mind of uh, non-ill will, and so on. Then you should develop this kind of samadhi with thinking and pondering, without thinking, but only just pondering. Develop it without thinking and pondering. Develop it with joy, 
or letting go of joy accompanied with ease or uh, accompanied with equanimity. So he's doing jhanas on top, you know, yeah. you know he's, he's able to practice yeah. jhanas alongside Brahma-viharas. Yeah. And when bhikkhu, this kind of, so now, when you're able to do that, even even steadier, when bhikkhu, this samadhi has been thoroughly de- developed by you, in this way, then you should train yourself thus. I will dwell contemplating the body in the body, diligently, clearly, comprehending. Well, then you're qualified for Satipatthanas. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Mindful, having removed longing mm. and uh, concern in yeah. regard to the world. Yeah. <coughs> and while you're doing that, also do... Because uh, yeah. by that time, there will be absolutely no obstruction or misconception left as we started this talk with in regard to what the body is, what the phenomenon of the body is, what the phenomenon of the feeling is, intentions, mind, it would have all been cleared and clarified and endured sufficiently for you to become very familiar with its nature. Which then you can develop. Yeah, yeah, of develop course. Develop that yeah, theme yeah. of what the body, the nature of the body. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Make it your vehicle. Yeah. You, you, you travel around with that theme. But the thing is, again, it's not just a theme on the level of, oh yeah, I I can understand what the description of what is body for what it is, its nature. No, no, it's seeing that. It started as an external instruction. You know, the unknowability, what body is subjected to, it's like position in this world. Seeing that when you look at this body, that's what you see. So it's it's a direct recognition of, of what you learned from before through the mind development described that precedes it all. So it's not just applying these abstract notions of impermanence and anicca and so on. They will somehow permeate these things and, and dissolve the roots of our greed, aversion and delusion. No, no, no. You, you, you need to pull them out. You need to find them. Cut for them. Find them. Take them all out. One by one, basically. Until all the work is done. And then you can rest. So the sutta ends by saying, when bhikkhu, this composure, this samadhi has been developed, uh, well developed by you, then wherever you, whenever you walk, you will walk at ease, wherever you stand, sit or lie down, you will lie down at ease. No more problems. No more problems.